This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. Every beer has a story, and that's why, for over 95 years, Gusmer Enterprises has offered a full line of solutions, including equipment, analytical instrumentation, and processing aids, all brought to you from leading suppliers and backed by strong technical support. For the solution to your story, go to gusmerbeer.com. We spend a whole lot of time dialing in our chemicals for cleaning our filler, um, working with the lab, and we just sort of wanted to save other people the trouble of going through it in the long process that we went through. It's not only improving our cleaning processes, but also developing our quality program um, and our quality control checks um, hand in hand with packaging to make sure that our processes, our chemicals, our training, um, our QC checks um, work for both departments. The WBC is now finally underway and there's so much great content. By the way, it's not too late to register if you still haven't. You'll only catch a small slice of the WBC Connect program here on the show. Last I checked, there were 44 unique presentations and 132 posters. This week, we bring you a conversation with our friends at Surly Brewing, who have a great WBC presentation teed up. Don't miss that. It takes place via Zoom, Tuesday, September 29th at 12.55 p.m. Eastern. You'll be able to view the slides and ask the presenters questions then. Or you can watch on demand for one month with a premium registration or for 12 months with a boundless registration. Hello, I'm Levi Bainham. I'm the packaging manager at Surly MSP. Hi, my name is Riley Seitz and I'm the QAQC manager at Surly Brewing Company. Uh, I'm also the secretary of District St. Paul, Minneapolis. You set out to optimize two very different facilities simultaneously, right? Yes, we had, they're similar machines uh, manufactured both by Comac, but the environment that they're installed in is so different. Um, We saw a lot of difference in how fast things would grow from building to building based on the the habitat that they live in. Okay, well, tell us more about that. What, what What were some of those differences between the two locations? Well, some, uh, so the older brewery uh, doesn't have much of an air exchange system. Uh, 
Uh, it's minimal. It's there to mitigate the CO2 buildup in the building. And it's not so much for a comfort or a micro standpoint, helping reduce humidity. Uh, while we have the MSP building was built much newer, much fancier, it's got a comfortable 75 degrees almost all year round. It keeps the growth down significantly. So the challenges we faced in each building were almost not comparable. The environments are, you know, very different, you know, in regards to climate, in regards to surfaces, walls, flooring, um, which allowed, you know, different organisms to grow, you know, and when I say organisms, I'm, I'm focusing on environmental organisms. Um, you know, they're ubiquitous in our process, as some folks say, brewing, brewing beer and packaging beer is not a sterile process. It's a sanitary process. So we do what we can to knock the, the levels of environmental organisms down and microbes down. But at the end of the day, we have to kind of understand what our baseline limits are um, with environmental microbes and that those baselines are different between the the, the two production spaces that we have. What did your cleaning practices in packaging look like early on? And when did it become apparent that the old way of doing things just wasn't going to cut it? Well, in the beginning, um, pretty low tech. We grew up from the five head cask line, which we started with. So everything was manual cleaning and Everyone, when you're small, cares a whole lot about how everything gets cleaned. Uh, the larger you are, the longer days that you run. Sometimes people get a little bit dismissive about some of the cleaning. Uh, so we had a challenge there. It also became apparent uh, how the growth happens from, say, the middle of winter into summer. Uh, we finally saw a big enough spread that we found a need to standardize it instead of just depending upon people to know when it was clean enough. Okay. And no SOPs or anything like that at this point, right? Uh, there wasn't a necessity for an SOP at the beginning, a small group. I think there were, yeah, we worked a lot of years at just 10 people all in the same square footage, all working together every day. So not a lot of uh, deviation. Everything was pretty standardized without having it written down. And how were you detecting um, any type of spoilage issues at that point? Uh, in the early days, detection of spoilage was sensory alone. We didn't hold micro samples. We tasted the beer on the day of packaging. We did other things, the carb checks, um, can integrity checks, but it wasn't until Riley started building out our system to monitor uh, ATP and micro that we were actually able to find out what was in our beer. Yeah, so around 2015, I was actually hired on as the first lab tech at Surly. So with the help of my uh, boss at the time, who was uh, essentially the quality manager, uh, we started introducing ATP swabbing. Um, that was the first um, significant micro testing that we were doing um, on the filling line. Um, and then we had also started uh, plating cans. Um, when I say plating, we were just using simple HLP auger um, to look for just like general spoilage and growth. Um, we also started doing sensory panel as well. Um, we were doing some tank release panels. We were also uh, 
doing um, can releases, and we were also tasting some shelf life samples as well. So we were tasting beer at um, a week after packaging, a month after packaging, and three months after packaging. Um, so we started to kind of develop and uh, take more measurements, I guess, to see what was going on with our beers. And that's true at both locations, right? Yep. So yeah, that makes it a little tricky too, because you have to monitor and or manage both breweries. So yep, we're doing ATP swabbing at both breweries, not only on the canning line, but in the cellar as well. Um, and then yeah, I, I was driving uh, between both breweries every day to set up a taste panel with our production team. So they could be tasting the beers that they were handling and, ma- and brewing. Um, and then yeah, same with micro. So as some people know, two production facilities, ours are about 20 minutes apart. So um, I would have to start at the Brooklyn Center brewery in the morning, collect samples, drive back over to the Minneapolis brewery and um, run all of the lab analysis over at the Minneapolis brewery. But that's different now. And we have a full size proper lab at the Brooklyn Center brewery. What were you finding at that point? Um, we would see occasional growth in HLP tubes. Um, at that point, I was uh, kind of a rookie in the industry. So I you know, was identifying to the best of my ability. Um, ATP swabs, we were getting good results. Um, But again, we kind of realized that our operators were using ATP swabs as kind of an SOP of cleaning. So they were super cleaning this areas where they're supposed to be ATP swabbing to get good results and somewhat ignoring the rest of the filling operation and seaming operation because no one was checking them and, you know, no one was telling them that that was equally important. Um, so we saw some, you know, a little bit of growth in cans. Um, some pack products had been held, but put on quality holds at the time. But um, again, HLP is super basic. So it doesn't give you a whole lot of information into what organisms you're seeing inside your tube. Um, in our sour beers that were unpasteurized, you could grow Brett in there. We could grow Lacto in there. We can grow PDO in there. But at sometimes it gets really hard to identify what's what. The craft beer industry experienced about 10 years of staggering double-digit growth from the mid-2000s up until just a few years ago when the growth abruptly corrected to a more realistic 3 to 6% a year, which means odds are that most folks listening to this have lived through some significant growing pains. Talk about some of the stress points as you can see them now in your rearview mirror. Uh, well, major stress point for us was splitting off into the two breweries. Uh, we replicated all procedures onto a much larger system. Uh, it wasn't quite a match. Um, so we had the new building, and then we also had two entirely different teams. Like we'd done an amorphous split. We're two groups. We're training up new people. Uh, not always evolving our procedures at the same time. Uh, Some people are learning things and finding what works at one building and not necessarily sharing it real time with the other side. Uh, There's also the the installation of core values into new staff uh, when rapid growth is happening can be difficult to make sure they're all on board with the vision of making the best beer for this brewery that you possibly can, as opposed to using it as a leaping or a stepping stone into a different brewing position. Yeah, I'll add to that too. I think from the quality perspective, it was extremely challenging coming into, you know, developing a quality program um, when the company had already existed for eight, 
eight years, nine years at the point when I started. Um, so you kind of got to change the and retrain and change the culture and the way employees think too, um, and kind of refocusing them and making quality a top priority. And kind of it took a lot of time and patience to kind of hold the production team's hand and kind of retrain them on proper practices, um, providing them with QC uh, data and things we were saying. And at at that point, you kind of felt like the beer police and pointing out what was going wrong when, you know, at the end of the day, we're all on the same team and we're here just to help help and provide the information to make things better um, and to create process improvement. But yeah, there was definitely... um, a, a challenging culture change that had to happen once uh, folks started to understand that quality was at the forefront of what we were trying to do. You had sort of this brewery-wide spoilage issue that um, that sparked a, a revamp of of your processes. Um, talk about that. The we had a pectinatus spoilage uh, issue arise. Uh, it was directly after troubleshooting and improving the process of the entire oxygen, the total package, ox, total package oxygen of uh, what we were sending out. Uh, and the victory of that was making a habitat that was ideal for pectinatus. Um, thanks to the quality team, we were able to identify that it was there, but it took a little bit longer to find out where it was coming from. Uh, we did a number of different cleaning changes rapidly. Um, Day to day, we would discard and rewrite cleaning procedures, uh, CIP and external, and spent a lot of time just trying to track down where in the system it could possibly be coming from. Yeah, it was like finding a needle in a haystack at that point because we had found the the spoilage issue in cans. That's where it had presented itself. And the cans we found them in were one-month-old sensory samples. So pectinatus is a pretty slow grower. Um, but once it shows up, it definitely presents itself in a horrific way. It makes your beer smell awful. Um, and it also creates turbidity too. So um, once we started backtracking, you know, we started with the, the nuclear CIP, which Levi can talk about Um but then we had to look through our entire process from raw ingredients to every surface that beer comes in contact with. So um, we had sampled bright tanks, yeast tanks, hoses, um, the... And when I'm t- talking about beer contact hoses, but also like spray hoses, water hoses, um, and the CO2 system. We kind of had seen it sprinkle throughout the process. So we had seen some positives in bright tanks, um, but the most surprising is that we saw it in the CO2 system. So that led us to actually CIP the entire CO2 system at the brewery um, and also made us realize that it was necessary at, at the moment. The, the CO2 system was shared um, between the front of house and the production department. So at that point, when we had seen, seen the positive in CO2, um, we had installed a sterile filter um, and a check valve between the front of house keg coolers um, and production department. So there was no potential for cross-contamination between the two. Um, at that time, since we had seen it in cans too, we started to super aggressively test our can samples. So um, low ABV, low IBU brands is what the organism thrives in best. Also, as Levi said, low TPO, um, low oxygen levels. So we 
on the packaging days that we were running um, a low ABV, low IBU brand, we were pulling two cans every hour and running one of those cans, enriching it and running one of those cans on PCR to see if we could pick up any organism. And over time, what we actually saw is that the pectinatus would show up um, in higher concentration at the beginning of our canning runs and kind of taper off towards the end. It would also show up in higher concentrations at the beginning of the week and then taper off towards the end of the week. So that kind of led us to think that it was more of a packaging line issue. It could have started from anywhere. Pectinatus is a, um, as some research papers that we found showed, uh, an organism that can live in soil, live in water. So it could have come from anywhere. Um, but the bummer is that it found its way into our filling um, equipment and kind of harbored itself there and to the beer soil. So, um, with the results we saw from the beginning of the, uh, you know, beginning of packaging runs, beginning of week runs, um, that it was finding a really great home inside of our filler, um, which led us to make some really drastic changes, um, on our filler cleaning. All right, Levi, let's hear about those drastic changes. Talk about your, sort of your nuclear CIP. So the onset of our pectinatus problem, in chasing it through the filler, uh, there's just so many nooks and crannies inside of a mid to large size filler. Uh, if you start to look at the exploded diagram of how many soft goods are in there, uh, the general recommendation was that we would break it down and rebuild it. We did not have most of those soft goods. And when you tell your vendor overseas that you really need them, it doesn't actually update their timeline of delivery. Uh, so we went after a nuclear CIP, uh, that was what it was called, and this was aided by our head brewer, uh, Ben Smith. Um, so what we did was we maxed out temp and concentrations for the materials we had on hand uh, slightly on the cusp of beyond. Uh, this was to go after it internally rather than doing a total rebuild just because we didn't have the materials to do it or necessarily the training at that point to execute a full rebuild on the filler and seamer. So we were at the max for caustic um, that our vendor would recommend. And we were now switching from a Santa clean and or oxymer uh, chlorine dioxide internal sanitization to using hot water, uh, 185 degrees, which is right at the line for our, our O-rings. Um, it actually made the CIP now take four hours to execute. You mentioned earlier about having a CIP, your, um, your CO2 supply system. We've actually got a really cool episode coming out here soon about CO2 supply systems. That's actually came from a member request, but, um, I kind of just curious how you went about that. That's not always the easiest thing to clean. Give us some, some more insight on how you, how you accomplish that. So our CO2 system uh, inside the seamer of both of our fillers, um, the recommendation of COMAC and CFT is to pump, uh, quote, a CIP fluid through them. And that didn't quite cut it because we're going to pump high volume liquid to nowhere. It's just going to spray all over the packaging line and create a dangerous environment. Uh, so what I did to work around that was plumb uh, connections onto our foamer to pump through the same CO2 channel. So we have uh, breakaway triclover connections that push a alkaline base cleaner, a quaternary ammonia um, neutral pH cleaner through there, 
and then hot flushes in between each one. And we had disassembled and cleaned the CO2 system before and afterwards to validate uh, after a period of months and found that it does keep it relatively clean uh, visually and based on our ATB swabs, it does keep it clean on a daily basis. Okay, so you're talking about only the CO2 supply um, system piping is limited to the, the filler itself. You, you're not talking about your entire supply for the brewery, right? Um, the entire supply for the brewery, we did pump um, something very similar to our nuclear CIPA, high temperature, high concentration caustic, and then um, hot water, 185 degrees through the entire system and just dumped it to the ground. We did that... Uh, on a fun overnight where we had some time between the restaurant closing and opening. So we didn't need any CO2 for the whole system. We scheduled it out with brewing and pumped it in from the supply in the cellar and pumped it out every location we could possibly find, which took quite a bit of backtracking through uh, ceiling areas, crawling around in crawl spaces with headlamps. It was something of an adventure. them handshakes so it's a handshake between departments so it's not just you know one department pushing beer from um their space say the centrifuge for example into the packaging space and saying you deal with it now i'm john bryce and you're listening to the master brewers podcast from the master brewers association of the americas Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Brewery Supply Group is now the proud exclusive distributor of Dingman's Malt. BSG is thrilled to partner with the Dingman's family and to distribute their superior quality malts to brewers, distillers, and homebrewers in the U.S. and Canada. Dingman's Malt combines modern techniques with their long-standing focus on quality and service to their customers and remains 100% independent and family-owned. Go to bsgcraftbrewing.com to learn more. Brew Monitor from Precision Fermentation live streams data from your active fermentations, allowing you to remotely track dissolved oxygen, pH, gravity, pressure, temperature, and conductivity from any smartphone, tablet, or PC. Try it free for 30 days. Visit precisionfermentation.com MBAA. This is the part where I usually tell you what's on the Master Brewer's calendar. Well, if you're serious about your career in brewing, there's only one thing that should be on your calendar right now, the World Brewing Congress. It's happening right now. And if you're not registered, then why are you even listening to this? You've probably heard of or even attended one of the famous two-week courses that Master Brewers puts on each year in Madison. Well, those classes will be all virtual this year, which means you can now get the same education without spending money to travel and while taking advantage of 45% off course tuition. The Brewery Maintenance Systems course begins October 11th, and the Brewing and Malting Science course starts October 25th. 
The Master Brewers Podcast Working Group still needs representation from a few more districts. Look for details in the Master Brewers Communicator or go to masterbrewerspodcast.com slash working group. Now back to the show. gotten that main you know main pectinatus issue solved and you're sort of kind of upped your game a little bit now talk about sort of um you know what's different at this point yeah so um now you know a lot of changes were made um on levi's on the package department side with cleaning uh chemicals training and then on the quality side too um, changes were made not only with um, lab testing, but also like the communication we have between departments too. So um, when we had the pectinatus issue, um, we also were using ATP swabs as a tool at that point to just do quick checks um, on different surfaces to see what kind of soil um was on your contact surfaces. Um, and with those quick ATP checks, we also had identified um, some much better hotspots for um, our daily ATP swabs on our filler. So we had changed the, completely changed the locations of where we were doing ATP swabs, focused them on beer contact surfaces, but also focused them um, specifically on our seamer too, because that's where we saw a lot of uh, nasty stuff growing. And that's where we kind of were assuming where the pectinatus was harboring. So we made changes there. Um, we also made changes to the frequency of ATP swabbing before we were just doing them, uh, I believe, at the end of every day as a sign-off for our operators to go home saying, thumbs up, you've cleaned the line uh, sufficiently. But now we do them at startup and we do them at uh, shutdown every day to make sure that the line's ready to go before we send beer and the line's ready to go before our operators leave for the night. Um, another thing we actually start implementing too um, is environmental swabs. So it's just saline swabs in tandem with our ATP swabs at the beginning of every week. Um, we chose the beginning of every week because the filler, we're not running 24-7, so the filler is sitting over the weekend. Um, so we want to validate that that cleaning they're doing at the beginning of the week is working well and is um, knocking down any sort of growth that could potentially have shown up over the weekend. Um, and that's also validating our ATP luminometer and making sure we have a better understanding of what our RLUs, uh, the results in the ATP uh, swabs, how those correlate with actual growth on plates. So um, that information, we also give directly back to our operators so they understand the week following because it takes, you know, several days for these agro plates to grow up with environmental swabs, um, we give our operators those results the next week saying, hey, you know, we saw the undercover gasser have a couple hits or CFUs. We saw twist rinse water, whatever the surface might be. We give that, I usually give that information directly back to Levi and to the operators um, who are cleaning so they know where there might be some hot spots. So communications changed um, and procedures have also changed too. Yeah, talk a little bit more about that evolution because I, I've been in that situation before where in a brewery, you're trying to make a major process change or get to the bottom of something. And so, you know, your procedures, like you said earlier, maybe even changing from one day to the next. And a lot of times the operators don't really love that. They're like, why, why are we doing it this way today? This is stupid. 
So you got to get that buy-in from people that, you know, want to get the process right as well. Um, I'm just kind of curious about that evolution because you're making a lot of big changes quickly. How did you get people to um, participate in that process and to communicate and to capture this evolution of, of, of these processes? I think I think at the beginning, like it's really important to make it a team effort. Like quality is not out to inhibit us from running. We're all on the same mission to put out quality beer. Uh, yeah, so, you don't want everybody like ducking under the table when Riley comes in the room, right? <laughs> right. It, it's not supposed to be oh, the the beer police concept. Um, we're all on the same team, and day to day, almost any operator can can agree to. I don't think this is great, but we will do this this way today. Um, and that works when they know their feedback is going to be included at the end of it. So they're allowed to say, I told you so at the end of the day, if it didn't work, uh, and everyone has enough, um, respect for each other to, to be able to voice their dissent without it meaning any kind of repercussion on them. I'll add to that. It takes a lot of teaching too. And I, I'm not going to use the word handholding because I, don't think that's appropriate, but like it takes a lot of patience and a lot of teaching. So when we're getting results in the lab and we're getting, you know, growth on plates, it's not just like me coming to the packaging line saying, you guys didn't do a good job, do it again. It's like, nope, I'm going to bring these plates from the lab to you, show you what auger plates are, show you what I mean when I'm saying CFU, kind of hold your, I guess, hold your hand <laughs> through why it's important. Um, and a lot of the times when we see growth, it's environmental. So also explaining to our operators, you know, what's environmental and plates versus what what's spoilage and environmental at the end of the day, you don't want growth on your plates, um, but it can also be an indicator to future problems. So you want to knock that environmental growth back as much as you can. So it doesn't turn into a bigger issue long-term. And to Levi's, um, you know, role too, over time, we've also drastically changed the way our SOPs function. So we now have real-time SOPs versus training SOPs. You know, training SOPs are fully written out procedures um, with concepts, with the how, the why of cleaning, um, every different process of cleaning as well, where the real-time SOPs are um, kind of, it's a, you know, chronological checklist um, at the beginning of the run, during the run, um, asking operators for information, whether that's ATP swabs, uh, CO2 of the uh, cans or of the bright tank, um, checking off that they're performing certain cleaning procedures. So it, it's also a guide for them to, to give them the confidence um, that they know what they're doing, that they're getting their job done. And then there's no questions asked. But before we were developing those, there, we, Levi, I can speak more to this too, just got a lot of operator input too. If an operator didn't think that one of those steps or check marks wasn't working for them. Talk about some of the lessons you learned in regards to CIP chemical selection. When we started shopping amongst different vendors, uh, we quickly found out uh, the salesperson has a lot of information on how the chemical works. Uh, Theoretically, they don't necessarily know how it's going to work in your brewery uh, with your specific equipment. Um, Try not to be mean to them, but work with them in finding the viscosity that works with your bulk draw um inline mixed foamer uh that can be challenging 
to to isolate what is going to work with your system. Um, you will occasionally find a chemical vendor who just wants to sell you the new thing and doesn't really have any regard to how well it's going to work for you. They just need to sell you an amount of thing for a quota. It's okay to be mean to those those ones, though, right? Um, <laughs> politely dismissive. Okay, Seems. good. Um, finding the right equipment um, is probably where you should start. Find the equipment you want to use and don't really skimp. Uh, if you go with portable units, you're going to challenge yourself with time down the road as you grow. Um, there's a really popular one that has a plastic bulb underneath that you fill chemical into uh, that isn't actually very chemical resistant. Uh, we break on average, I think we were breaking those like every three months before we finally decided to just buy stainless everything. Um, on the topic of compatibility with chemicals, you have so many different uh, metals in a seamer environment, uh, lots of different uh, gasket materials in a filler. You can start by asking your manufacturer what they recommend, but the best test is to just expose what you have. Like if you have a part that you've taken out of the filler, you can just drop it in your planned usage rate and see how it behaves over a week. Uh, it's a better idea to do that than to just supplement or submit your entire filler in its operating stance to, to a test. Um, and if you're going to do that, you should have all of those soft goods on hand. That is a fairly large investment for most breweries. Um, it's been critical for our ability to grow, to know that we had the backup materials on hand um, to try out new things. You um, you came up with an interesting solution to kind of stop spreading uh, heavier soil loads to other equipment that was more lightly soiled. Talk about that. So we're having a problem inside the seamer. Uh, we have the luxury of having a automated greasing system uh, built into our CFT seamer. Uh, the problem with that is it does dump uh, residual grease into the bottom deck area of our contained seamer. And so what we were seeing is that, for one, operators weren't necessarily keeping in mind to work from top to bottom. Uh, but when the grease did get spread onto a part, it would form its own seal to keep the microbes safe from further chemical interaction, uh, especially if you were spreading that grease during a alkaline foam stage and then the sanitizer step was just never going to break through that grease. Uh, so taking a lesson from past food manufacturing experience where you isolate brushes to contain allergens, uh, use that concept to keep the greasy stuff isolated from the virtually clean things that were just wet with beer from the day's run. Uh, this drastically reduced uh, how many times we would have to reclean. Uh, so swabs were passing the first time. Um, that was a stage in the process where we were losing buy-in by operators when you laid out a process and they went through it. And at the end of it, they had to repeat it three or four times. So the brushes really um, seemed to save the day in that scenario. It can be challenging enough to develop and maintain one set of SOPs in a growing brewery, but you ended up with two sets. Talk about that. So we have uh, so we have two sets for the two different breweries. Uh, they're slightly modified. 
we start out with the most aggressive known procedure, and then we have de-escalated to the specific location. Uh, what is the base level that needs to happen every night to get the cleaning done? Um, to minimize how much we're spending on chemicals and how much time the operators are committing to the cleaning act. Uh, we do have also three different forms, essentially, of CA, of uh, SOP. We have the instructional, uh, like you're walking a brand new employee through it. They've never done it before. Pictures, uh, the how, why. Um, they could basically take that piece of paper and do it without human interaction. And then there is the quick reference at the end for the brush up of the experienced operator who just needs to remember order reminded of order um, chemical concentrations so they it also helps keep honesty so you're not deviating this seems dirty I'm going to add some more chemical um, so that's not happening and then we have the the live SOP where it uh, where it is critical uh, that has to do mostly with the the filler sanitation release at the beginning of the day and the beer release process before we package Riley, talk about that some too. So is this something, like, have you developed this? Is the same throughout the other other departments of the brewery too? Do you have these like varying um, levels of detail within SOPs or is that unique to packaging? Like, how did that all come about? Uh, did you and, and Levi work on that together or how did that come about? Yeah, great question. So yeah, it's definitely brewery-wide. Um, we have these SOPs on the brewing side, on the centrifugation side. Um, they These real-time SOPs, we like to call them handshakes. So it's a handshake between departments. So um, on the packaging side, yes, Levi and I definitely developed those together to make sure that uh, we're getting the quality data that we need, but also making sure that the operator, operators have targets and specifications on those sheets and understand what they are so that when they're recording this information, they could compare it to what the target should be and also raise a red flag, you know, if they see that something is out of spec. So um, those real-time SOPs are extremely powerful. Um, but yeah, on the brewing side, it's very similar. You know, your brew sheet's kind of your real-time SOP where um, you have your specs on there and your targets for hot side brewing. Um, same with cellar, expectations on what your fermentations should look like, pHs, gravities. Um, and then on the centrifugation side too, um, we also made some drastic changes to that real-time SOP on the centrifuge sheet asking for things like, you know, um, final gravity, pH, um, sensory analysis was a big one that we added in the last year. Um, the centrifuge operator is responsible for um, having three tasters on the done, at the end of every run. The one taster is themselves, one taster is someone from the, uh, the brewing department, another person from the brewing department, and one person from quality. So we collectively agree that that beer is ready for packaging. So it's not just, you know, one department's pushing beer from um, their space, say the centrifuge, for example, into the packaging space and saying, you deal with it now. It's no, we have to all come to an agreement that this beer is checked off and good to go from one department to the next acting, you know, as that handshake saying, yep, we're good to go. We're agreeing between the both of us um, that we're confident that this beer is ready. That was Riley Seitz and Levi Bainham here on the Master Brewers Podcast. Definitely check out their WBC presentation Tuesday, September 29th at 12.55 p.m. Eastern. 
where you can ask them questions directly and see way more detail about their cleaning and quality systems journey. As always, you can find a direct link in the show notes. Look, I know you're probably zoomed out and totally sick of virtual this and virtual that. I know I am. But WBC Connect is not just another virtual conference. This is a meeting that I usually drop everything for because it's the most serious international gathering of technical brain power in our industry, and it only happens once every four years. If you're serious about your career in brewing, you're crazy not to attend at least part of this. Registration for WBC Connect is now open with information on both free and paid programming options. Visit worldbrewingcongress.org for details or check the direct link in the show notes. Are you enjoying the Master Brewers podcast? Let me tell you about a simple way you can help us keep making more. Take a minute to thank our sponsors. There's no way we could produce this show without generous support from sponsors like Hopsteiner, ABS, Proximity Malt, BSG, Gussamer, and Precision Fermentation. So please, let them know you heard their message on the Master Brewers podcast and that you appreciate their support. 